2: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The
3: Tonight Show. The government believes another lockdown can be avoided, although it cannot be ruled out entirely, as the Taoiseach today dismissed a circuit breaker lockdown to combat rising infections.
4: No one can give any guarantees in relation to COVID 19. There have been too many twists and turns so far.
5: Joining
3: me in studio is Professor of Immunology at DCU Christine Loescher, Psychotherapist Joanna Fortune and Labour TD Eoin Weirdon. Dublin City has been described by Lonely Planet as one of Europe's most down-to-earth and friendly cities. Lonely Planet editor Tom Hall will be here to tell us how those rankings are selected and later we'll take a look at some of the biggest stories which have made the headlines this week. You can get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight virgin media news reporter nicole gurnan joins me now from government buildings and nicole neffes and the government um again seeming at odds over their messaging this time over children socializing amid those rising case numbers in the 5 to 12 year olds what's the Taoiseach have to say about it today
6: Yeah, Claire. there's an awful lot of confusion here and that's because, as you say, there's a bit of mixed messaging coming. So this is all from Dr. Ronan Glynn saying at the NEPF briefing last night that first of all, children can of course go trick-or-treating this weekend, but perhaps parents should be considering whether they should mix with all their different social groups given that the incidence rate of COVID-19 is highest among five to 12-year-olds. And he also said we should perhaps be looking at whether they should curtail some of their extracurricular activities. And that's something that was actually echoed by one of the teaching unions, the INTO, today as it called for the reintroduction of some form of contact tracing in schools and said also that perhaps we should be looking at postponing things like school tours and also parent-teacher meetings. But when the Taoiseach was asked about this today, he said that the government has received no guidance in relation to curtailing extracurricular activities. And he said that he believed extracurricular activities were hugely important for children so they wouldn't be rushing into anything about that at the moment. Um, So there is obviously, as we say, some confusion about this and that is understandable for parents as there is some mixed messaging. However, I think the key thing here is that if children and your child does have any symptoms, the key thing here is to make sure that they self-isolate and get a PCR test and, crucially, that you don't send them into school come Monday.
3: Now, Nicole, also today we heard a little bit more about the government plans for antigen testing.
6: Yeah, that's right, Claire. So from today, anyone that is deemed to be a close contact of someone who has a positive case of COVID-19 is going to be sent antigen tests in the post, provided that they are fully vaccinated and that they don't have any symptoms. And what they're going to have to do is once they receive these antigen tests, they'll take one once they receive it, then another one two days later and another one two days after that, unless, of course, they start to develop any symptoms or they receive a positive antigen test. In that case, then they're going to have have to self-isolate and book themselves a PCR test. Um, Now, this is going to, um, obviously, they're going to hope that this is going to decrease our rates of COVID-19 and pick up more of the cases. And interestingly, the Taunisda also said today that this could perhaps could be something that we might look at for schools. Perhaps if there is a positive case in one of a school pod, that antigen tests could be distributed to other children in the pods. Now, the HSE has said it's going to be providing detailed information to people about these antigen tests. And crucially as well, it's also going to be providing more information in relation to our vaccination scheme. And this one is going to be targeted. So it already provides information in lots of different languages, but it's going to be providing information in nine additional languages on social media. And that's after a CSO survey found that Eastern European workers have the lowest rates of uh, COVID-19 vaccination here in this country. So there's going to be lots of messaging on social media in nine additional languages, as I say, some promoting the vaccine and others providing information uh, for pregnant people
3: and just briefly Nicole um, that legislation has come into law about ticketing uh, for nightclubs that's come into effect now meaning all nightclubs will have to ensure that people coming in the door will have a ticket if they want to go clubbing
6: Yeah, that's right, Claire. So despite the fact that the industry had asked for a two-week grace period, this is going to come into effect from tomorrow. The tickets are going to have to be purchased an hour in advance and they're also going to have to be electronic. People will have to provide their personal details and that's in addition to people having to provide their COVID cert and their photo ID at the door. Now, tickets um, won't be uh, transferable. However, they can be uh, cancelled and then reissued. In addition to that, uh, the records are going to have to be kept for 20 Eight days, but people will actually be able to acquire tickets if they're inside a venue earlier on in the night and want to stay until later, so that perhaps appeases some people. Um, however, no doubt there has been an awful lot of um, consternation from the industry, an awful lot of people not very happy with it, saying they're just having 24 hours in order to implement this and saying many venues simply don't have the suitable ticketing machines.
3: Okay, Nicola, Government Buildings, thank you for bringing us that update tonight. Now, doctors have reported a marked increase in the number of children with upper respiratory tract infections and say they are worried that this is masking the true number of COVID-19 cases. Well, joining me via Skype is chair of the GP subcommittee of the Irish Medical Organization, and that's Dr. Dennis McCauley. Uh, Dr. Dr. McCauley, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. We are hearing those concerns about the the 5 to 12-year-olds being the group with the highest COVID incidence rates in the country. Um, Are you seeing evidence of that in your surgery?
1: Very much so, Claire. The incidence of of, uh, children coming with uh, respiratory symptoms has really soared, really, in the last two weeks. Undoubtedly, some of that is due to other viruses, such as the um, respiratory syncytial virus, but there there is a, 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 a large number coming. We are noticing, unfortunately, a certain reluctance of the parents to go for COVID testing. I think the, there's a number of reasons for that. I think they're depending too much on the lateral flow test that you mentioned in, in your last piece. I think there is the implications of a positive test. And I think people are just tired. That's, that's the other I- issue as well. So there is a lot of respiratory illness, but some of it is, on, on, is undoubtedly COVID. I'm not sure if we're diagnosing all of them.
3: Um, are, are we hearing uh, just a little bit more um, in the way of... Our, anecdotally, at least, it seems that there are lots of kids going around with head colds and coughs this year, a lot of them with viruses that are simply mimicking um, COVID symptoms. Are we seeing more this year and this year than, than perhaps other years?
1: Well, but, well, um, compared to last year particularly, because you know there was really no respiratory illness last year, I, I think there's confusion... I think there's a we probably would have to ask for the algorithm for testing and and so forth to be up to be up to be updated to take into account the sort of general apathy that does exist amongst uh, families to go and actually have a test with their with their child. So last year there was none this year it's probably the same as usual but people have medicalized it really whereas before there would be a lot of self care now naturally when there's a respiratory Ill- illness they're very interested in actually talking to the doctor presenting to, to the doctor, but that final pathway of going to get a COVID test is not as it's not as sure as it was last year. People are reluctant to go.
3: Much talk again about contact tracing. Do you think that there's a case for it to return in our schools?
1: Uh, probably it's I think the algorithm has to be changed I think at the very beginning of this the things were going well until a number of weeks ago until this virus arrived this other virus arrived so it is very confusing I think it needs to be revisited and the whole aspect of how to deal with COVID in the context of other uh, um, conditions because remember the flu is coming also so we need to have a I I rethink does that mean um, actual contact tracing I'm not sure Claire to be honest
3: yeah and briefly Dennis just with the the hospital figures that we're hearing about um, do you see a knock-on effect for patients that you're referring for you know treatment of other conditions to hospitals are you seeing a backlog there and, and a delay in their referrals
1: I think that that actually began at the beginning of the COVID crisis. We're only beginning to see the consequences, to, um, cancers being delayed, so, uh, their actual di- diagnosis being, being delayed. I think it's, it's a news item, but it has been present for the last year, really. So we have, we have been seeing that generally since, since this crisis started. Remember, there was a crisis before the COVID crisis in, in actual relation to, to waiting lists anyway. It has only made it worse.
3: OK, Dennis Macaulay, chair of the GP subcommittee of the Irish Medical uh, Organisation. Thank you for joining us tonight. Good
4: evening.
3: Well, with me now in studios, Professor of Immunology at DCU, Christine Losher, Psychotherapist Joanna Fortune and Labour TD, Éireann O'Riordan. Uh, we have no government representative. Um, none was available to join us here in studio. But I want to start with you, um, Christine. And just on all this talk, we're hearing those rising case numbers. And this group, the five to 12 year olds, the primary school children, essentially, um, you know, that that warning around increased socialisation and that warning from Dr. Ronan Glynn last night that they should perhaps cut back on on the activities. The government then today saying, no, we haven't got such advice. It is quite confusing and worrying for parents. What would your take on it be? So
7: I think the first thing to say is that it's not surprising that we're seeing an increase in case numbers in this age group. I mean, we opened schools at the start of September on a very high background of case numbers in the community. So there was only one way that the case numbers in these this age group was gonna go. Um, and if you actually look at the figures, they're probably about one or 2% in terms of the numbers of cases this two weeks versus the previous two weeks. So there's a small increase there, but I think the positivity rates are up. I think that the, the mo- most important things to say is, is, is that it's not surprising. They're all unvaccinated. Um, they have been mixing, and they're in a context of all of the rest of the community mixing we've public transport back we've schools and colleges, and we have workplaces back so. they're in the larger context of the whole of society opening up, so it's not surprising. I think in terms of curbing kids' activities, I think we've all seen that children's activities in the mainstream have actually moved outside, particularly over the last six months. And I think we all see that every weekend that continues to be the case. So I think in fairness to parents, the mixing of children is, is not happening in large numbers in the homes at the moment. Children's activities are predominantly outside. All of their football training, GA training, whatever it is yeah. they go to, is predominantly outside. What about outside. those indoor
3: activities for kids who, say, don't want to play sport but are doing a dance class or an art class or something indoors? And again,
7: all of those are regulated in terms of how those classes are run. They are all abiding by the guidelines. You know, I have children myself that are in those classes and they're very well run. So I think we shouldn't be focusing on what we shouldn't be doing with the children i think we should be focused on do we need to change our behavior a little bit we saw the data coming out of the esri yesterday saying people have changed behavior they're not as adherent so i think in general we probably need to maybe adhere a little bit more but i don't think we should be focusing on starting to negatively impact on kids by by minimizing their activities because i do think they are very important Um, i don't think mixing at activities is any different outdoors than it is to being in school indoors. And they're all going back into school on Monday. So I think that's where the confusion about the messaging is coming across because we are putting them all into a classroom next Monday. And I don't think that really focusing on what they're doing Mm. between now and then in terms of activity is going to make all that difference.
3: Yeah. um, You know, Joanna, like there's, you know, about curtailing children's activities. I think for many parents, they were like, God, kids have been through enough here. Tell us about the impact of, of, say say we are forced into that situation, say the government go along with Neffet's view on it and say we should pull back on these things... What sort of impact do you think that's going to have on children? Well, at this the one stage? thing
2: that the pandemic has consistently shown us is that children's mental health and well being, children and adolescents indeed, is profoundly affected by their surroundings, their circumstances, their connections and relationships with parents, but also teachers, their peer group, and how they get to play, learn, and grow. So, curtailing, and even that word, limiting and curtailing, cutting back on their opportunities to socialise and connect if we make significant changes to how our children socialize. We shouldn't be surprised that there are significant impacts on on their global well-being, including and maybe particularly their mental health well-being. And of course, and I fully appreciate, by the nature of a pandemic, it is an ongoing, ever-changing situation, and, and adaption and flexibility is really an important part of it. But this kind of you know confuse, confusion that came out today is just not acceptable at this stage of the pandemic, and there has to be responsibility for that. Like we have have to have clear communication and commitment to our children's well-being because don't forget they took Christmas holidays last year and they didn't get to go back to school till March so sending out a mixed message today of course that frightens children and their parents mm-hmm. about what does that mean and, for and us. very,
3: Very few parents will forget um, the, those three months certainly and mm-hmm. Aon in terms of the government messaging here are we back to where we are before saying one thing and the government then mm-hmm. defending their own actions in this area or is there justification there because of the the cases that we are seeing among the five to 12 year olds and the general concern yeah. that's there from public health officials well,
4: I think it's a shame there's not a public, sorry a government representative here tonight that we could maybe debate with or I could debate with because there has been a divergence between what government representatives are saying and what the public health message against is. If you hear government spokespeople it's all about opening up it's about positivity. I would su- su- suggest a, a level of complacency but when you hear voices from Paul Reid or, or Ronan Glynn or Tony Houlihan it's about the pressure on the, on the health system, it's a pressure an ICU, and then we have a message today about 5 to 12 year olds. As has been said, 5 to 12 year olds are primary school children. Uh, they're working and, and, and learning in a system that they're going to go back into on Monday, which Many school teachers will tell you, we don't have enough ventilation, we don't have enough, uh, you know, CO2 monitors, uh, we can't get substitute teachers, uh, and the the level of understanding of what's happening in the system doesn't really feel to be there from government. So I think we've moved to a level of complacency from the political system that isn't being matched with messaging from NAFTA, and I think we need to have a much more, uh, you know, unified approach from from people who, you know, the Irish people are hanging on their every word because there is a huge level of, of anxiety within the country. And we still have, by the way, 20% of young people between 18 and 34 are unvaccinated. And these are people who are circulating widely and affecting all of our chances to get out of this in pandemic.
3: Yeah, and I think now the government would say that we're we're urging people who are unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And that that was the big message, I think, when the numbers... Well, I I appreciate that, but
4: I I think if you were to observe government spokespeople, it's about opening up, it's about nightclubs, it's about ticketing for events, and that's fine. But that has to be balanced with a realisation that the numbers in ICU are increasing, the health system is still under under huge pressure, we're only not even in November yet, and primary schools still have to function. And we're getting a message now about five to twelve year olds being a, 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 a problem area.
3: I mean, the big question is, what what do government do because that pressure is on to open uh, the remaining sectors who've remained closed for, for so long and given that we have the numbers vaccinated that we do, that we are we are on that path and maybe it's about how we handle this endemic phase now. But, you know, it's come back again around the contact tracing that was pulled by NEFET in schools. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a case for it now to come back in, notwithstanding all that disruption, really, that it caused to children?
7: Yeah, and I think the, the the big issue around the contact tracing at the time was I think the length of time that children were out of school was probably too long. So. There was a 14-day period where children were pulled out of school with the contact tracing. And I think one of the things that I spoke about at the time was about a streamlined system where it was really clear that when a child was positive in a classroom, that the, the other children in the classroom would be taken out for five to six days, have two negative tests, and what it would do is it would really negate any of the risk because after that period of time, after two negative tests in a child, the chances of them actually getting or developing COVID would be tiny and it went from no, that this extreme 14 day
3: window that it, was always yeah, there yeah
7: it, it went from that extreme 14 days to nothing mm-hmm. so i think that the that what we need to do is we need to absolutely bring back contact tracing. It is a key element of breaking chains of transmission. And if we are concerned about the numbers in these children, that's exactly what we should be doing. But it should be a streamlined system. And the most important part of that system is accessible testing for parents to bring their children to. And that's the walk-in centres that parents were really engaging with very early on in the school year being coming back. And it's gone now. And that is impacting on parents' decisions about getting their child tested. And I think... We need to put the infrastructure in place if we are concerned about the children, but contact tracing and the seven-day, six-, seven-day period could be done in a streamlined way that would minimise the transmission in school with children.
3: Yeah, I think the big deal was that, you know, kids had no symptoms and yet they were out of school or an entire class was out, for maybe 10 days at a time, Joanna. Again, when you're talking about routine and structure and all the days lost in such a critical time in their lives, it would have had a big impact. Do you think by lessening that, that you know, parents would be in favor of a return to contact tracing? Oh,
2: I would imagine so. And as a parent of a young school-aged child in this bracket, I would certainly support that. I think what children thrive on is as much as we can afford it to them, and it's been very difficult over this pandemic period, is consistency, routine, reliability. They really thrive on structure. And we all know the structure is flexible and adaptable rather than rigid, so it does have that wiggle room within it. But we're able to give them clear messaging about, this is what's going to happen, then you'll be back at school. But that in, out, in, out, and those prolonged breaks, it meant that children never really got good going in school they never really got to settle and especially those younger children and not just young children many of our children have not had good solid years for the last 2 years in school who were having separation anxieties and some transitional difficulties going into school that was compounded by repeated and prolonged breaks you know we talk about mitigation measures
3: and what and teachers and schools would say you know when it comes to ventilation mm. we're not getting enough, the filter, like we're getting CO2 monitors for some classrooms, but we're not getting it across the board in every classroom. And then we're not being resourced to provide the filters, which are very important for having fresh, clean air for up to 30 unvaccinated children in a room.
4: I think it's fair to say that September wasn't working and September was slightly chaotic in a lot of instances. And remember, 20 days is considered by government to be enough to refer a child to the NEWB, the Welfare Board. So 20 days is considered to be the benchmark of too many school school days having been missed. 14 days, therefore, in a, in a, in a chunk is a massive amount of school time to miss, but you're, you're quite right. There were, you know, entire class groups being sent home because the public health teams were, were swamped. They weren't dealing uh, in, a, in a timely fashion with individual schools. Principals felt they had to err on the side of caution and entire school groups were being sent home. So that wasn't working. So a change was made and a change had to be made. But I think we've now gone to the other extre- extreme and there needs to be a balance between the two. And I think answering testing is part of, of the solution there. But again, there are systematic problems here within the system, overcrowded classrooms, not enough uh, resources, schools also not being backed. I mean, there are situations, for example, in Wexford, where a principal and a school board of management made a decision that was best for their school. One school out of 4,000 in a, in a, a war type scenario, I think is something that needs to be backed by the department. What I heard from a Finnegal minister was well, sure if you let one school close, they'll all sc- close. I think that shows a lack of trust with school leaders and school communities who in these very difficult circumstances can often make the best so decision say, for their schools. So you
3: let individual schools make their own call? I think in a wartime scenario, I mean this is a
4: wartime scenario in terms of trying to pa- t- uh, tackle a pandemic. We're also getting circulars from the department as to who can substitute and who can't substitute, who can step into a classroom and who can't. And that is restricting the capacity of a principal to actually do their job. And many of them are just ignoring these circulars because they're just they're just not workable and I think the minister and the department need to be an awful lot more I suppose in touch what's happening on the ground and realize that everybody's doing their best and to inject an awful lot more trust into the system than, than that's than that's what's there at the moment.
3: And what do you think about the, the ventilation um, that's currently in, in our school buildings? I mean hard to gauge what every school around the country has in terms of fresh, clean air for their students. But do you think that's really important at this point to to look at those filtration systems and for government resources, state resources to be put into making our schools long term um, a fresher, safer place for everyone?
7: Yeah, I mean, I think without knowing the details, we can all make a fairly good assumption that they're they're not as good as they need to be when we're dealing with an unvaccinated age group. We're dealing with unmasked children in schools and we're dealing with a lot of them in a very small space. So I think... Absolutely. I mean, this, this is kind of what should have been worked on over the summer. Mm -hmm. It should have been done long before now. And I, I just think, again, we're coming back to, do we restrict kids activities or do we do the things that we should be doing to Mm -hmm. mitigate their risk? And they're the things we should be focusing on, not restraining kids from
3: doing their normal activities. What about the likes of antigen testing? The Thornish mentioned it today for pods in schools, close contacts. Um, now there are still there there's still reluctance around antigen testing and its effectiveness. Do you think in this case it would help drive numbers down and give that reassurance that, that everyone's looking for?
7: Yeah, again, antigen testing is a really good de-risking tool, and that's all we're trying to do in every scenario at the moment is just lessen the risk. I think if we're not going to go back to full-blown contact tracing, where we're going to have children out of school with negative PCR tests before they're back in, then antigen testing is a good alternative in the same way as they're being sent now out in the post to, to, to close contacts. And we could use a similar system, again, to be able to just minimise the risk before kids go back into classrooms. So they're a good alternative.
3: And briefly, Christine, I just want to ask you on the on the, the subject of lockdowns and the Taoiseach and the that not being able to rule them out, although clearly they're not in favour of them and despite WHO saying you know a circuit breaker could be in order here do you think it would work do you think circuit breakers work I think the key
7: issue at the moment as to why that is being considered is the hospitalisations and the ICUs and the pressure on the health system. The key thing that we need to do to address that, and we can address it, is the booster vaccines for over 60, where they are disproportionately represented in hospitalisations. They account for 63% of hospitalisations from our case numbers at the moment. So we need to stop talking, I think, about circuit breakers and actually do the things that we know we can do that will actually mitigate the impact
3: on the healthcare system. We'll leave it there. My thanks to the panel. After the break, Lonely Planet editor Tom Hall on why Dublin is among the world's top 10 cities. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, Dublin is one of Europe's most down-to-earth and friendly cities. That's according to Lonely Planet, which announced the capital as one of the world's top ten cities to visit in 2022. But with rising rents and the cost of living, how attractive is Dublin City to those who live here? Well, here to discuss is the editor of air and travel magazine, Owen Corrie, former Lord Mayor of Dublin, Councillor Hazel Chu, and via Skype, Lonely Planet editor, Tom Hall. And I want to come to you, Tom. Um, there may have been a few raised eyebrows here when we saw we made it to the top 10, uh, Dublin city at least, but tell us from Lonely Planet's point of view, what makes Dublin so special?
9: So, this is Lonely Planet's Best in Travel uh, guide. It's our annual celebration of the best places to visit for the coming year. So, we're thinking about 2022 in this case. We actually uh, showcase maybe a different side to Dublin than what well, a lot of uh, visitors would normally see. So, we talk about a real sense of dynamism in the city. We herald its green projects like its bike hire schemes and encourage people to get out and do some sea swimming, which is maybe a very different take on the city than, uh, than people might think about.
3: Um, Just in terms of how you select your top 10, what sort of criteria are you looking for there, Tom?
9: well um with best in travel it's really the, the pooled wisdom of lonely planets travel experts who in normal years are, are going around the world visiting as many places as we possibly can um, there's a nomination process which is then voted on by a, a short list of people who um, are actually who don't work for lonely planet but are working in the travel industry so we hope gives us an extra sort of sense of uh, verification and the idea is that it's a global list so it's intended to appeal to people from the world over and um, obviously a very popular city anyway but we're to shine a little bit of a different light on it today
3: yeah so so we're number seven now if we wanted to move up there and become number one what does dublin need to do
9: oh what a good question um i've actually um, I've known that dublin's going to be in the list for a while and i was lucky enough to to come to dublin myself over the summer and i actually think it's just a case of, of time passing and people maybe reengaging a bit we've had uh, the last couple of years where people haven't really been able to travel Dublin actually felt quite different on, on my last visit without large numbers of tourists from the rest of the world and I think one of the things is how the city responds to people coming back and, and deals with maybe some of the challenges that it's had in the past with lots of visitors coming into the city centre um, and maybe you know causing some problems for people who do live there
3: Okay, Tom Hall of Lonely Planet, thank you so much for joining us there with your insight into um, how Dublin made it into the top ten. We appreciate that tonight. Um, I'm coming back to my panel now and, you know, just to to, uh, ask you about the bigger picture here and what it means for Dublin to be on a guide such as Lonely Planet. Uh, how important is it, do you think, for tourism?
10: Really important. And Lonely Planet has been very kind to Ireland over the years. Um, we've got... Ireland has been in the list. Cork has been on the list. Cliffs of Moher have been the list. Generally, we get there or thereabouts. Thanks to um, that selection process that Tom talked about, and people like Tom have been huge supporters of Ireland down the years, it's a small group of people who decide this. It's slightly random in that, you know, you... what. Tends to trend. They will read top ten lists. They'll pick up top ten lists. It's also English language because Lonely Planet is hugely influential, you know, among English speakers worldwide. It's obviously founded, uh, co-founded by an Irish woman, Maureen Wheeler. If this was in Madrid, where the top ten list would probably be Colombia, Peru, places like that. And but it's hugely influential in the key, two key markets for us. Our biggest market by far, Britain and America, our second biggest market. So it's not really whether we come number one or number seven, because sometimes it's, it is a little bit random. It's a small group okay. of people. But the fact you're in the list is the key to everything. And as long as we keep getting our key attractions into that list, uh, that's very, very important for
5: our marketing.
3: Um, as a former Lord Mayor of the capital, Hazeltu, when you saw Dublin number seven there, were you surprised to see it?
5: surprised but I was really proud it's a it's a great news story it's it's a great to be on that list and it's great to have Dublin on the map but I think while we're celebrating that we shouldn't forget the other positions were on global lists at the moment or the other figures seven on this list were seven percent increase in uh in rent for the first time since 2019 for this uh, second quarter for this quarter in the year we're also tent on uh, vacant sites globally at the moment. So while we're thinking of the celebrations of the list in terms of tourism, we need to think of the balance that has in terms of housing, in terms of whether we're housing people properly in the city, whether we have enough housing, and also um, what are we going to do in terms of culture as well, balancing culture, because we've had news stories in the last couple of weeks in terms of the cobblestone today with the Science Gallery, previously with Berner Shaw. If we're getting all the tourists over here, what are we going to be showing them is another thing. So we need to make sure first and foremost, we don't drive rent increases Mm. too further. And the second thing is a balance of culture.
3: Yeah. And just on that, like cities needing to have a unique selling point. If you're going to see, you know, famous landmark pubs and things like what we're hearing today about the science gallery, you know, fading away from that big picture and then, all these images coming in about expensive hotels, it being a costly place to visit, that, that does damage to, to our ranking in terms of a place you want to visit, doesn't it?
10: We can obsess about that a lot, uh, but let's face it, our competitors are Northern Europe. Our competitors aren't uh, the cheapest cities in the world. Our competitors are the Paris's and Londons and Berlins and places that where prices aren't that hugely different for the tourist. What this um, is probably showing up and what Tom's comments show up Dublin has had to reorient its tourism from what it was, which was classic hangover tourism. It was the great place to come and party, big crowds, mm-hmm. Temple Bar. Covid has made that impossible in the short term to come back to. So, what Hazel's uh, policies have been doing? Separated cycleways, where uh, you know you can actually bring a cycle tour through the streets mm-hmm. of Dublin now, and you see them multiplying and increasing. The swimming in the sea that Thomas got. Dublin's location, the mountains, the sea, the bay, almost like the Bay of Naples, all of the things that we take for granted are what someone looking in from outside will see as something to celebrate as a tourist. And, you know, while the whole Temple Bar um, hangover experience uh, is probably you know got to be parked in the short term as a tourist attraction to dublin it served us really really well there's an awful lot else we can be doing
5: absolutely yeah, so totally agree with owen on that
3: temple bar hangover culture tell us about that what, what do you make of that hazel
5: i, I think we've all experienced it in some way shape or form and i think as owen pointed to there, there's a point here where we can reimagine tourism for our city. And I think by Lonely Planet putting us on this list gives us this opportunity to look at tourism differently. What way are we going to celebrate culture? It's not going to be, hopefully, hangover culture and just stags and hens. And that's no offence to the stags and hens parties coming over. But there's a lot more in our history that we have to offer. In terms of also going out nightlife, clubbing is culture. We need to relook at that.
3: Yeah, um, you know, it's not just a challenge for Dublin, but it is... Nationally, isn't it, to get us back to where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, how how can we do that, Owen?
10: Lesser challenge nationally, and I'll tell you why. Um, if you look at the imagery across America and across the world of Ireland, it's a lot of high cliffs, mountains, clouds, it's exactly what the post-COVID tourism experiences are, uh, the wind blowing through your hair, far away distance, um, self-catering accommodation, you know, small house. So while Dublin um, has a slightly different tourism product that served us terrifically well in Britain, it also can offer that because the mountains are so close. We sometimes forget that within County Dublin, you have those bike trails uh, in Glencolyn and places like that. So while you can come do your city experience, and our biggest attraction, our second biggest attraction in the country pre-COVID was the Cliffs of Mar. The number one attraction was the Guinness Storehouse, 1.7 million a year. That sort of Big bang, branded. There's only, uh, for, um, there's only um, Hershey in America and one of the uh, uh, German car companies that can offer as big a, a branded experience that had as num- uh, the numbers that Guinness delivered. They're the huge uh, contributions Dublin made to, nationally okay. to, to uh, tourism and it can continue to do that. But in the meantime, post-COVID, the crowded street, the crowded uh, pub culture, it's got to be put on the back burner.
3: well there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to Tom who joined us, Owen and Hazel who are on the panel tonight and after the break, a look back at some of the biggest news stories this week. Stay with us. Back now for a look at some of the biggest stories which made the headlines this week. I'm joined by news editor at Independent.ie, Denise Callan, Irish Times political correspondent Harry McGee, and senior editorial analyst with Kinsan, Razan Ibrahim. You're all very welcome along tonight. Busy week it's been um, for a, a mid-term break, and it's all really centered around this reopening, in, in part, and the way the reopening has been handled. Um, the sector really keen to get back up and running, but then these new... The changing of the goalposts, essentially, by government all the way along, Harry.
11: Yeah, it hasn't happened in a vacuum, Claire. I mean, it it happens against a background and a context of very quickly escalating numbers, uh, increasing numbers in hospital, increasing numbers in ICU. So there is a kind of a serious context to it. And it was unfortunate for nightclubs, and they were closed for the guts of 550 days, Uh, Since March of last year, just as they were about to reopen, suddenly the numbers started deteriorating uh, again. Uh, I think Catherine Martin tried to push for a full reopening last week, uh, but she was batted back by the Department of Antisic and the Department of Health. So what we have now are new guidelines, which were issued uh, today, and essentially all nightclubs from Friday will be all ticket affairs. So, if you want to go to a nightclub, you will have to have a ticket. I think they can be purchased online up until an hour or so before the nightclubs open. But there will be very strict protocols around ID, around your digital COVID certificate. Um, if it's a live event, uh, you would be very surprised to hear that no crowd surfing is allowed, Claire, or no moshing, um, which is not really surprising. But there will be some very strict rules in relation to it. And I think all eyes will be on the sector to ensure. Uh, that they're vigilant and that they're enforcing all the rules and that they're being compliant uh, with everything that has been laid down. But it's it's going to be... It, it, they have reopened, uh, and I think all eyes will be on them for the next few weeks, especially if numbers continue to deteriorate.
3: Yeah, because we've been getting various messages this week with that reopening. We're also getting this new coming back out with their big briefing, talking about being deeply concerned about the rising numbers um, making, you know, references to younger children than the Taoiseach had to kind of defend government strategy today. Um, It's been tricky and the messaging hasn't been great this week, has it, Denise?
12: No, I think, Claire, that's the main thing, really, that actually it's, I think, mixed messaging is the issue at the moment. And people have been talking about that. I think earlier on in the year, people were saying that they were tired of hearing the same message. And now people are saying we're actually getting mixed messages. I mean, we've had, you know, um, oh, kids can go trick-or-treating last week and that was great. And then we heard today there won't be restrictions Imposed, but it's almost like this underlying message of, but you can, you know, you know, re- maybe pull your children back from some activities that they've been taking part in, and it's almost like people are the responsibility is being put on people now, a personal responsibility to maybe impose their own restrictions as opposed to kind of the lockdown restrictions that we knew nationwide before.
3: Yeah, that I suppose that, that they did hint at that. They did talk about personal responsibility taking hold, didn't they, Rosanne? But um, it, it's also been this way that everything is open. But you don't need to go to everything. And in fact, what public health officials say is, you know, really consider whether you should go to, you know, congested spaces or meet your friends in such a place. And and, and that's difficult for people, isn't it? It's confusing now in the weeks ahead.
8: Yeah, absolutely. But it's still personal uh, responsibility. Uh, COVID is still there and we need to uh, act like that, although we are vaccinated, Mm. but we still need to be careful and we take, we need to take responsibility on that.
3: Yeah. Um, like, you know, in terms of as well, what, what was announced this week was another big thing and that's in the way of the carbon budget and where we're heading with, with climate change and how we're addressing that. There's that big conference coming up next week, COP26, where all the world's eyes are going to be on, on what action needs to be taken by individual countries. And there's a lot of pressure in Ireland too there.
12: Yeah, there is. COP26 is a somewhat uh, uncatchy acronym for what is a global summit of countries. There's going to be representatives, Claire, from 197 different countries. They're all going to be there from this Sunday through to November 12th. And basically the aim is to come up with a draft agreement that each country will take the responsibility to undergo some sort of Um, I suppose, meaningful engagement and action on climate change, you know. And, like, I think the pressure's really on this year because, first of all, we're meeting after a global pandemic, so there's been changes around the world. Second of all, we did have that intergovernmental panel climate change report a few months ago that hit headlines, and I think that really hit home with people. This time they were like, "Okay, this is how climate change is affecting my state and the states around me. And then also I think there's a bit of a grassroots movement happening now. I mean, we all know Greta Thunberg's face the youth are clearly it's something that the youth are passionate about is climate change and i think maybe world leaders are really kind of copping on to the fact that if we want to keep the youth on our side we'd want to get moving really and make some sort of difference you know
3: yeah there's pressure on government too isn't there to act on this these carbon budgets that came out and very stark in terms of those emission ceilings and, and and the cuts that need to be made over the next 10 years But it's going to be tricky, isn't it, to deal with those individual sectors in Uh, that plan next week?
11: Of of course it is, and and they, they echo very closely the ambitions that are going to be set out in COP26, as indeed were set out in Paris five years ago and in Copenhagen in 2009. They're going to be very, very difficult and there's no way of beating around the bush. It's going to involve a lot of sacrifice for an awful lot of sectors and for an awful lot of individuals. I think agriculture is going to have to change fundamentally in order to meet the targets, even though the targets for agriculture will be slightly less onerous than it will be for other sectors. So the carbon budget was, was published on Monday, and next week we'll have the Climate Action Plan. And that's where we'll see the real meat, uh, what will be expected of agriculture, of energy, of transport, of industry, uh, etc. But there will be very, very big changes. There will be relatively uh, mild uh, in context in the first few years. But as we move between... 2026 and 2030, the cuts will be really dramatic uh, every year and will mean uh, hardship, uh, at least in the short term. Do
3: you think the government needs to look at how they present it in terms of instead of it being a net cost, that this is actually a net benefit to society? Because farmers have already said, look, what's coming down the line is really going to affect our livelihoods, it might be lifestyles for some. It's livelihoods for them.
11: It is, but the dairy sector has just become so industrial in the past 10 years that the herd has grown by 12% in the past decade. And they're talking about stabilising the herd. The herd has not stabilised yet. So something, somebody has to say, we can't grow anymore. We have to, we have to sustain. I, I think there's a good argument in looking at the wins. But we also have to be realistic because people will want to know how it's going to affect them economically. And I think the government uh, and media have to be honest with people in relation to what will be involved and what what sacrifices will need to be made.
3: Rizan, big news tonight um, for Facebook, or Meta, as it's now to be known. Tell us about this rebrand. A very difficult time for uh, the social media giant at the moment, and now they've a whole name change
8: absolutely and changing your name is not going to change who you truly are what we need actually to see is real change in policies and practices of uh, the platform itself we the uh, the problems and issues are there and they are going to stay there unless Facebook uh, acknowledge the problem being transparent and being open as well to work with civic community human rights organizations and independent uh, companies and regulators to help the platform Mm. tackle harmful content on their platforms so this is really important changing the name is not going to solve the problem.
3: What do they think they'll do by changing the name? Because it's actually a pretty controversial thing to do when you're in the middle of this crisis to suddenly come up with the name change. Is it the right time to even do that?
8: It's distraction and they wanted the media to focus on that aspect of Facebook, uh, of this uh, new um, uh, revelations for Facebook. So it's mainly distraction from the mainstream media coverage.
3: Yeah, what do you think about this decision, the name change, but of course it came off the back of all those really damaging leaks um, that emerged and that testimony that was given by a former employee about really what was going on behind the scenes.
12: Yeah, I agree with Rosanne, though. I don't think, you know, I know it's the name change of the umbrella group and it means, I think, that you know underneath your WhatsApp and your Instagram heading now it won't kind of say by Facebook. So it's kind of like they're almost trying to... Detach themselves from their other entities, and it's like maybe they've realised there actually might not be the strength in the Facebook name that they originally thought, Claire. But I agree with Roseanne, like, I don't think, you know, there was a great big conference today, and it was, you know, now we're going to be called Meta, but I really think that most people
3: are talking about the controversy still, to be honest. Yeah, I know, and, and I can't see it going away. Um, anytime soon. Now to other news this week and the winner of the Siena International Photo Awards 2021 was photographer Mehmet Aslan for his picture Hardship of Life. Now the winning image which we can see there shows a father who lost one leg and is holding his son who was born without lower or upper limbs due to a congenital disorder caused by the medications that his mother had to take after being sickened by a uh, nerve gas released during the war in syria razan this image really struck you like it's incredibly powerful Absolutely. it's a very joyful image but there's heartache behind it
8: absolutely it's all emotions all english vocabulary and and the uh, words are captured in this moment so it is painful and it is heartbreaking but at the same time inspirational Powerful and full of love, and despite the hardship and despite the uh, the hard conditions and the suffering, they are still smiling.
3: Yeah, I, I think those. You know, it's really important to see that actually also, and there is with all this pandemic and COVID and all of that. The focus has gone away, hasn't it, in large part, especially for here, here in Ireland for us with with international news as well, Denise. It's good to, to refocus.
12: Yeah, definitely. I think Razan was talking about the photograph earlier and it really makes a
3: difference, I think, Okay. Claire. Look, there we have to leave it. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all of the late team here, good night and take care.